Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Ebony Mountain. She's a graduate researcher, part of uh, physiology, anatomy, and microbiology at La Trobe University in Australia. And we're going to talk about uh, her research. So, Ebony, thanks for coming. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, tell me about your work. Uh, what, what lab are you in? What does the lab do? And what do you do? Yeah, so as you said, I work in a lab at La Trobe University in Melbourne. So our lab is headed by Associate Professor Carl Halbig, and our lab actually is quite diverse. So we work on a range of different projects from human viruses, bacterial viruses, and also agriculturally important viruses. And I guess the premise of my work and I guess a, a, a key theme to our lab really revolves around the idea of how we can augment or strengthen the immune response to viral infection. Okay. So is this just in humans or in other creatures or what's your model that you're using? Yeah. So we work, as I said, like on humans, um, bacteria and like agriculturally important viruses. So in animals, I work mainly on human viruses, um, but we have people in the lab that work on um, bacterial viruses. So bacteria that infects veterinary clinics, so on dogs and cats. But also we have some projects working on abalone um, that get infected by herpes virus and also um, wild deer populations. We're trying to understand tr- transmission from wild deer to cows. Tell me about, uh, so, so what human viruses do you focus on? Yeah, so we mainly focus on how we can augment the immune response. So we just use viruses as our model disease. But we have a range of different viruses in our lab, mainly flaviviruses, so like Zika, Dengue, Hepatitis C virus. But we've also done some work on influenza, herpes, simplex virus one, and yeah, just like a range of different viruses. But what we sort of try to look at is the immune response that's produced following these viral infections and how we can augment or strengthen this response to fight the viral infections. Well, all the viruses you work on, are they all capable of going latent for a while inside of a person? That's a very good question. We usually look at very early infections in our models. We don't really look at later sort of infections or latency. So what we try and understand is what happens pretty much straight after a viral infection. So the immune response that we're looking at is our innate immune response. And that happens very, very early following infection. So hours after infection. And we've actually sort of the premise behind our work is looking at if we can strengthen that first immune response, maybe we won't get that later infection or the latency of these viruses sort of nips the butt (laughs) at the start. But I would pay a lot of attention, you know, not trying to tell you what to do, but the <laughs> fact that these viruses do go latent, does that mean that the immune system is one? Does that mean that, you know, the virus has monitored the immune system and, and tried various ways to overcome it? And now it says, all right, well, conditions are such that we're just going to turn off 
some function and go latent or change our function. So it may be very useful because then that may be able to be used upfront. Yeah, that's a really good point. So a lot of viruses have ways in which they can hide from the our, our immune system. And I guess that's why a lot of viral infections go undetected or untreated is because they have ways in which they can infect us without us actually knowing. And I suppose we don't work on HIV, but HIV is a classic virus that can do this. So a lot of people don't know they're infected until it's sort of too hard to treat. And that's like a massive area of research at the moment is trying to understand how we can target um, infected cells that don't actually really know that they're infected. But the viruses that we work on uh, usually would get symptoms from. So for example, like influenza, most of the time, you know, you have influenza. It doesn't really go into that latency period. But up front though, I would think some viruses make you sick same day, some two days later, some a week later, some longer. So you, I mean, there's always this initial latency period until you, you know, you're symptomatic. What governs that? And maybe there's a lot to be learned there. You know, it sounds like you're looking at the dynamics of the immune system and a virus within that latency period or at first uh, sign of symptoms. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I guess there is that period before you get symptoms and the symptoms most likely are due to your immune system. So either an overactive immune system or an underactive immune system. So we're trying, I suppose, to understand the mechanisms at which the immune response actually elicits an immune response. So whether that's not strong enough or too strong, I guess they've been having a lot of problems with respiratory viruses such as SARS-CoV-2, like coronavirus or influenza, where we get these cytokine storms. And that's where you get like a very, very, very strong immune response. And people end up getting way sicker just from your immune response rather than the actual viral infection. Yeah, I mean, in order to get to that point, they would have to be interplay back and forth. You know, the immune system creates a response. That response is like adjudicated. Does it work? Does it not work? Then I guess it changes tactics at some point. Uh, There's a feedback mechanism somehow or multiple feedbacks. That's, you know, where the body says, all right, well, we need to put even more towards this. And maybe that's what creates the cytokine storm. But I would think there's all these dynamics that go on beforehand. Yeah, definitely. And obviously viruses evolve over time and over hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, they've actually evolved ways to sort of combat our immune response. And I guess that's the strategy that they use to hide from our immune response or dampen the immune response. So they're more successful infecting us. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting area of study trying to understand that interplay of that first viral infection of our cells and what the immune response actually does. What have you, I pick a virus that I guess you know the most about. What are the dynamics so far as you can tell from the moment it enters the body? How does it enter the body, et cetera? Like, you know, what's the, what's the story of your one that you understand the best? Yeah, I guess we probably know the most about flaviviruses and they all are very similar. So we're talking about Zika virus, dengue virus, hepatitis C. They all act in a very similar manner. They, they're from the same viral family. So I guess following infection, so they enter the body by uncoating. They have a like a lipid membrane surrounding them. They enter the body via that, so lipid mechanisms. And then they're detected by a cell because they have, like I suppose, naked nucleic acids. And our bodies have ways in which they recognize nucleic acids that are not supposed to be in the places that they are. 
So obviously in our bodies, our nucleic acids or our DNA is usually confined within our nucleus in a cell. It has like a special area for this to be confined in. So if there is nucleic acid outside the nucleus, we have receptors that will detect this. And when we're infected virus, this is the ways in which our bodies have, our bodies recognize these viruses is through these receptors. So certain viruses can sort of mask themselves from these receptors. They have ways in which they can sort of block these receptors or hide their nucleic acids from these receptors. But following that, following infection, I suppose we look more on the immune response side. So these receptors will detect nucleic acid that's present within the cytoplasm of the cell. So outside the nucleus, um, just floating around sort of thing. And then following the receptor detection of this nucleic acid, it will activate a range of different proteins. And these proteins, and they sort of line up in a signaling cascade. So once one is activated, then the next one will be activated. And then the end of the line for that activation is the production of a protein called interferon, which is a cytokine Mm -hmm. that can be antiviral to the virus itself. So it sort of leads to this production of interferon. And then this interferon can actually go back and be secreted outside the cell. And then it sort of warns the neighboring cells that this cell is actually infected. Once the cell produces these substances, it expresses different proteins and things on its membrane, which communicates with the external immune system as to what its condition is. Yeah. So it'll secrete these proteins out and neighboring cells will be able to detect that this protein So they have receptors on their surface that are interferon receptors. And then there's a secondary pathway that will be able to produce more antiviral proteins. So they sort of already have a boosted immune response before being infected. They're already at that antiviral state before being infected. So I suppose the body tries to combat this viral infection by just telling all of the neighboring cells that there is an infection. So it's like a war that hasn't begun yet. Like they're already trying to fight something that is coming. Have you looked at the um, extracellular vesicle cargo and the profile of it once um, a cell's infected? Because that could also be another way, you know, to transfect a warning and prepare other cells uh, for the virus coming, not just uh, expressing things in the membrane. Yeah, that's a really good point. We don't, our lab itself does not look at extracellular vesicles, but obviously that's a massive area in our field at the moment is looking at what is packaged in extracellular vesicles and what can stimulate um, neighboring cells. Obviously extracellular vesicles have the ability to travel further in our body. So these secreted proteins that I was talking about usually just activate like neighboring cells. So the cells in the tissue that the infection is targeting but extracellular vesicles obviously have the ability to travel further within our tissue systems. It has been found that within extracellular vesicles, they do house some proteins and some lipids that are able to activate um, neighboring cells and neighboring tissues. So it is a very good strategy by the immune system to have that sort of standby effect on these cells. And in terms of the immune response that's overboard, The response is coming external to the cell, these cytokine storms, like where do they come from and, you know, how do they manifest? Once a cell is infected, it does produce these interferon proteins that I talked about that are antiviral. And I guess some ways in which 
a cell will produce these, it will constantly think it's infected. So cells surrounding it will constantly be activating their cytokines and interferon responses. And because some of these cytokines can be pro-inflammatory, so they create this inflammatory environment. And if you have a respiratory virus, for example, coronavirus or influenza, this creates an inflammatory sort of environment in your lungs. And this is when we get chronic like lung disease and chronic cytokine storms in your lungs. And that disease is actually so hard to treat once it's formed. The, the cytokines, what do they do to infected cells versus non-infected cells? Like, how do, do they go into various cells and cause changes or how do they affect uh, various cells? Yeah, so the cytokines are able to activate um, receptors on the cell's surface, which are like interferon receptors. And this leads to a secondary pathway, which is another like immune pathway. It leads to the activation of interferon-stimulated genes. So these genes are proteins that are able to act in antiviral ways. So they can either target virus itself or they can go back and act again on the first immune pathway. So they can sort of augment this pathway themselves. So I guess when the cytokines are activating these receptors on cells, it can lead to like an exaggerated immune response to some of these viruses. And what does the exaggerated immune response look like? Yeah, how would you describe it? Yeah, so I guess if you're constantly activating these immune responses, you get more cytokines being produced, more antiviral proteins being produced, and like you would get any a very much exaggerated inflammatory response. And this inflammatory response is helpful in some ways to the host or like our bodies when we have a viral infection because it can make the environment not a good one for a virus, except when this inflammatory response goes on for too long. So in this very much exaggerated immune response, then it becomes really toxic for the host. Too many inflammatory mediators and like just not a not a very good environment for the cell to be in. And this can actually cause cell death. And if you have obviously too much cell death, that's obviously going to cause disease. And that's what happens in these cytokine storms. Yeah, why do the cytokines cause cell death? What happens? Yeah, so as I said, like this inflammatory response is just too much for the cells. They can't live in that environment. So it just ends up causing the cell death. Obviously, cells have very mediated ways in which they keep alive or they die and they have ways in which they can sort of undergo um, cell death pathways for example apoptosis when the environment is not great enough for them to survive in so cells will sort of die and and this sort of makes way for new cells to grow but when too many cells in one area are dying, that's when, yeah, these diseases can sort of manifest. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, I was wondering if uh, the cytokines kill the cells or if they cause the cells to kill themselves, the apoptose. That's what I was, is there a difference that you noticed there? Yeah, yeah so the cytokines themselves, I don't think, cause the cell death, but they definitely trigger it. So they just cause the the environment to change and then the cell will not be able to survive in it. How can you get a handle on what's happening 
with a particular virus when cells are uh, infected and then when these cytokines appear and then when these cytokines are in abundance, what does it do to, you know, the viral factories inside cells? Do they become more lytic? Do they, I mean, what's noticed about their, the viruses that infect? Does infection slow down? Does it, you know, what happens? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I guess the environment that the virus wants to make is an environment that doesn't kill the cells without the virus being able to manufacture themselves into new viruses, if that makes sense. So the whole point of the viral infection from the virus point of view is that they want to take over the host. They want to hijack their machinery to manufacture new viruses. And then the cell will die, release all of the viral progeny, and then they will be able to infect the neighboring cells. So without the host, the virus can't survive. So if the virus is killing the cells too quickly, then it's not going to be able to be transmitted to, for example, another person. And that's where we get viruses that have very, very high mortality rates, but not very high transmission rates. Whereas we have viruses such as uh, the novel coronavirus and most likely influenza, where they have very, very high infection rates. So very, very high transmissible rates but not that great of mortality rates. So they're able to quickly replicate within someone and move on from that host. The virus, I would think, would want to stop apoptosis. It would want to stop all these things so that it can have enough time to make as much progeny as possible. And when it's ready, then, you know, lice the cell. So I just wonder if, um, I don't know, is there a way to expose a population of cells uh, to a whole bunch of cytokines and then, you know, have another population that is infected with a virus and look at the dynamics, the apoptosis dynamics and, and, you know, all kinds of other things side by side, what influence the virus could be having on the infected cells. Yeah. And I guess that's sort of what we look at to develop novel antiviral therapeutics. Like there's therapeutics that are targeted at apoptotic pathways. So inducing apoptosis in infected cells will stop viral transmission, but obviously if you have a widespread infection, that's not going to do anything. That's You pretty much have to kill all of the cells that are infected and that's not helpful for the host. But also interferon treatments were massive in the 70s and 80s for viral infections. But because these interferons can be so toxic to the cells when delivered in such high amounts, they create these cytochrome storms and then they're not effective anymore. So I guess it's really trying to understand that balance between not enough of an immune response to too much of an immune response. And I guess that's where the field's really going now is how can we augment this immune response for when we have a very early infection to sort of combat the infection quite early to how can we not overstimulate this immune response too much to harm the host? Yeah, if you're going to augment, you better have a brake pedal too. Exactly. you You can scale it down because people that are already in that situation where they're flooded with cytokines, how do you tamp that down to to keep them alive? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I guess that's sort of where the field is at now, is trying to understand that balancing act between not enough and too much. And I guess we look at lipids, and lipids are a classic augmenter of these pathways. And we're trying to understand if we were to treat with like a lipid sort of drug, it's obviously going to augment the pathway. However, what ways in which do we need to stop this pathway happening or 
what are the sort of levels in which we need to augment the pathway to stop viral infection. And this can be a range of different things. It could be the amount that the cells are receiving, but it also can be a timing thing. So cells obviously have a way to bring things back to a normal level, homeostasis of a cell. They can upregulate things naturally and then downregulate things when they need to. So we really need to understand more about these pathways and more about what is actually not going to be toxic for a cell, but is going to be effective at killing viral infections. Well, what's observed about like corticosteroids, prednisone, things like that, they seem to suppress inflammation. How do they do it? And can that be used or a similar mechanism used uh, in what you're researching? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I don't know much about steroid treatments, However, I think that how they do work is sort of dampen this immune response. So they would be probably most effective when there is a great inflammatory response. And what we're trying to do is just really pull that break on the immune response. When we obviously get these cytokine storms and things, it's hard for the cells to then break themselves. So these drugs really target those responses are trying to calm down those responses. So then the cells have the ability to recover from this. Yeah. Is there any, are there, are there any viruses you know of that cycle quite often, meaning they go from making the person symptomatic to it going away, symptomatic to going away, you know, things that probably an ideal one to study is something that flares up, let's say monthly or weekly, unfortunately for the person. But if you had the person come in and you looked at blood markers and other stuff, when they're, actively sick and when they're they're okay I, I would guess you would notice a lot of different parameters and a lot of different trends and that may help you yeah that's a good point and there are a few viruses that do that so classically off the top of my head herpes simplex virus one so that will pop up from time to time in the person that is infected and yeah that is a would be a really interesting thing to look at and I'm sure people are looking at that I guess what our lab really tries to focus on though is that initial point of infection. So not waiting to get to the point of the fact that the virus is sort of in quotation marks settled into the body so that it can pop up whenever it likes. We sort of are trying to get to the point where we can treat infections quite early on so they don't get to that point. But there obviously is laboratories that are looking at more like latent virus infections, how they can make them appear when they need to treat them, if that makes sense. So obviously a classic one is HIV will be hidden in our immune system pretty much until it becomes infectious again. And there's obviously drugs that are trying to target the ways in which we can sort of pop the virus out from those immune cells or make it sort of known that those cells are infected so we can treat them we're more looking at early infection and how we can combat right. that early response. Yeah. So, you know, well, I've been asking you know, all my questions, but let, let me <laughs> ask you about your research. So, so what are you noticing in like really granular detail when someone gets infected by a virus? Can you tell what happens first and then next and next and next? Yeah. So I suppose I'll tell you about my project. So I just finished my PhD actually only a month ago. And during my PhD, I have been able to demonstrate that when we're infected with a virus, and this can be a range of different viruses in a lot of different cell types, we find that lipid droplets, which are sort of lipid-filled compartments within our cells, are actually induced. So 
they're sort of like little organelles in our cells. So if you think of a cell as a human body, it's sort of hard to do, but we have little organelles, which are like little organs within the cell. They all have different mechanisms and different responsibilities within the the cell. But we're interested in lipid droplets, which historically been thought of as just a place for a cell to keep its lipids, not really an important organelle, just like a storage organelle. But we've found during viral infection or very early during viral infection that we actually get this accumulation of lipid droplets. And we were really interested in this and it has been noted in other pathogen infections and cancer models before that you do get lipid droplets being induced in these models upon infection or upon cancer or apoptosis of those cells. However, no one really cared about it before. But what we've been able to demonstrate is that this accumulation of lipid droplets is actually needed for an effective interferon response. So those antiviral cytokines I was talking about. And if we stop the accumulation of lipid droplets, we actually get an infection that's way more exaggerated. So it's obvious that we need this accumulation of lipid droplets to produce antiviral cytokines that will be effective against the virus. Well, where do they accumulate? It's this is all inside the cell and where inside the cell. So, yeah, so it is within within cells. So they actually accumulate within the cytoplasm of cells. Any particular place inside the cytoplasm? Do they hang out, you know, near the mitochondria <laughs> or you know other organelles? Like, if you look at yes. them on a you know under microscopy, like where do they? Where are they? That's a really good question, and they're actually sort of everywhere. So. They bud from the endoplasmic reticulum. So they actually share a lot of the same cargo as the endoplasmic reticulum. But they bud from the endoplasmic reticulum and then they sort of go all throughout the cytoplasm. There has been studies that have looked at their interactions with other organelles, such as the mitochondria and proxosomes and things like that. And no one knows yet whether they interact with these organelles any more during infection. But yeah, they they sort of are dispersed throughout the cytoplasm and they move around quite quickly during infection. Well, wait, what do you mean they move around? Like if they're, are they randomly dispersed or do they form clusters? And you know, if you look yes. at a cell at various stages, what will the lipid, lipids look like? Do they rearrange somehow or? Yeah. So that's actually a really good question and one we're still trying to answer. So they naturally move around cells before infection anyway. So if you take a movie of a cell with lipid droplets stained, you'll see that the little droplets just sort of move around the cell. No one really knows whether this is a directional movement, whether the cell decides where they go or they just sort of like move around randomly and they can deliver lipids to certain parts of the cell we have found that lipid droplets move quicker during infection. This is a very new study that we've started. However, we still don't know whether this is a directional thing, whether the cell decides there needs to be lipid droplets in this area of the cell or this area of the cell. And we still don't know why they would move quicker, whether there's just more there and they're sort of shooting around the cell quite quickly. It's still unknown. And that's something that is a current project in our lab. Well, we think they probably are linked to nutrition. Like, are they, you know, if you look at where the mitochondria are in a cell versus the lipids, do they hang out near each other? And when there's infection, does that change? Yeah. So no one knows that yet. No one knows whether they interact more during infection. And it's something that we're quite interested in. But 
yeah, it's a really good point. They're lipid-filled organelles, so they do interact with mitochondria and transfer lipids to be, to be converted into like ATP and create energy for the cells. So we have a hypothesis that they probably would interact with mitochondria more during infection because this would make sense, right? The, the cell's going to need more energy to fight off the infection. Obviously, we're still looking at this, but yeah, they, they sort of hang out everywhere and up until the last maybe couple of years, just before I started my PhD, no one really cared that much about them because they thought they were just filled with lipids. They just are there in the cell. A lot of people obviously care about the mitochondria and about the ER during infection. But yeah, no one really cared about the lipid droplet until it was found that there is a few different immune proteins that actually localize to the lipid droplets, the lipid droplet surface during infection. What about the morphology of the lipids? Are they just blobs? Do they grow bigger on average You know, yep. when there's infection? Or do they get smaller? Yep, that's an excellent question. And we have actually found the lipid droplets do grow during infection. So they do get bigger. Um, and there's also a number of smaller lipid droplets that do accumulate during infection. So hypothesis is that there's new lipid droplets being created during infection. Um, which bleb from the ER, but also the existing lipid droplets that are there before the infection are getting larger. So there's a few different hypotheses around why this could be happening. And I guess the main one is that there's a lot of lipids free floating around the cytoplasm before infection. And during infection, these lipids will get broken down by stress responses by the cell. So there's reactive oxygen species that are produced during stress responses that break down lipids and these can become toxic to the cell. So we think that it could be a mechanism by which the cell is sort of protecting themselves from these toxic breakdown of lipids. They are putting them into these lipid droplets to protect them from being broken down. And this is something that has been looked at in the developmental field. So in a model of development, this is what happens during embryogenesis to protect these lipids from being broken down. So we think that it could be a similar mechanism during infection. However, no one has ever looked at this before. And it's obviously something that we're quite excited about and we'll be looking at in the future. Where do the lipids go to die? You know, they're created in the endoplasm reticulum, but are they like sucked smaller and smaller until they wink out of existence or... Like, how are they used, you know? Yeah, so that is also a very good question. They're broken down by enzymes, and we think that they're broken down, obviously, not just us, so we and others in the field, they're broken down to be used, their, their lipids are broken down to be used during cellular responses. So whenever the cell needs extra energy or things like that, they will go to the mitochondria, be broken down by these enzymes and used as energy for the cell. Oh, but has that been observed on cellular films? Like if you were to watch a cellular film and you tagged a few of them, you know, using machine vision or whatever you used, and you looked at the size of them and where they go and you track them, you know, you see them being quote unquote born coming off the ER, but then where do they go? Do they yeah. all have a common place? And what happens to them? Again, do they shrink smaller visibly until they wink out or do they open up and their contents spill out or the, does the membrane fuse with 
the mitochondrial membrane, if there is one, I mean, what happens to them? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that people actually still try and understand the dynamics of lipid droplet growth and breakdown. So a small section of them would go to the mitochondria and be broken down for their lipid contents for ATP synthesis. But also there are enzymes that break down lipid droplets. So they have a phospholipid membrane and then they have a triglyceride center. So their phospholipid membrane can be broken down for lipids to be delivered to, for example, the cellular membranes and the triglyceride centers can be broken down for energy and to be made into different kinds of lipids as well. But this area is so new that people are still really trying to understand the dynamics of lipid droplet growth and depletion. And as I said, like historically, it's just thought that this is just purely for energy, but recently, well, actually not so recently, people have sort of linked lipid droplets to bioactive lipid mediator synthesis. So these bioactive lipids can be produced by the breakdown and the growth of these lipid droplets. And these bioactive lipid mediators are involved in a range of different signaling pathways, for example, in cancers and auto-inflammatory responses, but actually also in viral infections. And they have been found interestingly, to be both pro-viral and pro-host under different circumstances in different viral infections. So there's still lots to learn about the breakdown of these lipid droplets during viral infection because it could be for the production of these bioactive lipid mediators, but it also could just be to fuel the cell. But so far, no one has been able to find the answer. And yeah, it's, it's something that we're hoping to look at in the future. Well, when they move around the cell, do they move in straight lines or they just seem to like wander, you know, mm. randomly in all directions? A really good question. And there's, there's subsets of lipid droplets that act quite differently. So within a cell, lipid droplets are quite heterogeneous. So there's populations that are smaller, larger, ones that move further, ones that stay still, ones that seem to move quite directionally, like so in more straight lines, ones that seem to sort of just jiggle throughout the cytoplasm, not having any directional movement to them. I guess what we're trying to understand now is whether the different subpopulations of these lipid droplets have different mechanisms during infection. So I said before that important antiviral proteins can localize to the lipid droplet, and we sort of want to understand whether there's certain populations of lipid droplets that house antiviral proteins or actually in general are just important for infection. Maybe some populations are purely there just to create energy for the cell, but there's certain lipid droplets that are able to move around the cell with these antiviral proteins on them. So yeah, it's something that we're still looking at, but it's such a fascinating topic. Yeah. I just realized in the microscopy, it's, I guess it's mostly 2D, you know, but the cell is like a spherical microcosm. So I wonder if, I mean, it's a different subject, but I just wonder if there's microscopy that can see down through different layers and, you know, sort of in a 3D or a spherical view, see where things go, because you'd be missing a lot of information if, information if you just look at, again, a 2D slide, even a movie, but things could wink in and out of the plane in which you're looking yeah. and they might still be there just deeper or shallower. That is a really good point. And something that we actually wrote into a recent grant to look at. So no one has looked at it yet, but we do really want to understand the lipid droplet dynamics during this response. So it would be really cool to use 
sort of high tech microscopy imaging to track these lipid droplets during infection and see what is happening, where they're going, whether it's sort of a mechanistic response or whether it's completely random. Um, I suppose in our 2D models, because that's the only thing I can speak to right now, all we know so far is that the lipid droplets travel further from the point of infection and they travel faster. So, yeah, it, it is going to be really interesting to look at during an infection and see exactly what is happening. And obviously all of these things start in tissue culture models in 2D, but obviously we want to see this in tissues and we want to see it in 3D models because that will inform us better of what the dynamics are actually what what what's actually happening and what this actually means for infection. Well, when you look at a cell, how many lipids are running around in your field of view typically? Tens, hundreds, uncountable? Yeah, so before infection, usually between maybe like 20 and 30, depending on the different cell types because all different cell types have different numbers of lipid droplets in them. So we mainly used astrocytes as our model, so primary immortalized astrocyte cells. And this is because we use neurotropic viruses, so viruses that infect the brain. So in the astrocyte model before infection, we have around 20 to 25-ish lipid droplets hanging around in the cell. Obviously, this differs between cells as well. So some cells that are maybe growing or dividing or at different stages of life, the lipid droplet number does vary. But after infection, we see this jump to around 70 to 100, even a little bit more lipid droplets within a cell. So there's a big difference. A very, very noticeable difference. And yeah, as I said, it's different in different cell types as well. So we obviously use different cell types as models for different infections because in like viruses infect different parts of our body. So we've got to use an appropriate model for that infection. So we know that macrophages, for example, have very, very large lipid droplets. They're quite fatty and quite lipid filled. Whereas our astrocyte model, they have lots of lipid droplets, but they're all quite small. So just trying to understand the dynamics of these different lipid droplets within these different cell types, but also within the same cell type, it can become quite confusing, but also very exciting to try and figure out. So what's going to be the, the future of your research, you think, in the, in the next year or two? Are you going to, you just did your PhD, are you going to keep focusing on this or are you off to another topic? Yeah, so I'm going to keep focusing on this for a year or two. Um, so I've just started my postdoc in the same lab that I did my PhD in. And we're going to keep looking at some of these responses, hopefully more in vivo in models that are 3D. Like you said, it's really important to sort of look at 3D models and understand this. So we're going to set up some models like that and have a look at this. But after that, I really don't know. I really like viral infections. I love the immune response. So I hope to stay in this area, but I guess that's something that I will have to look more into and in trying to find an area that I can carve out for myself. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah. So I guess I have all of the main scientific places that you can go. So LinkedIn, ResearchGate, Google Scholar, and things like that, if you just search my name, but also alternatively, I am on Twitter and I like to tweet 
about things that we're doing in the lab. I put up microscopy pictures. So if people want to come there and see what I am doing, I think my handle is at Ebony, so E-B-O-N-Y underscore Monson, M-O-N-S-O-N. So they can come and see some of the things that we do in the lab there. All right, very good. Ebony, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.